Good morning, everyone. You're listening to The Sci-Files, an exposure segment featuring Michigan State University student research. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Today, we're here with Claire Hoffman. Claire, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm a PhD student here at Michigan State University in the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife, where I study human carnivore conflict. So you mentioned human carnivore conflict. Which carnivores in particular are you interested in? So my primary area of interest is in African carnivores, so mostly lions, leopards, and hyenas, with a few jackals thrown in every now and then. Do you look at all of these together or separately? Um, So I'm actually pretty interested in the interaction between them. So all of them together, all of those carnivores tend to eat livestock, which is what my research is mostly on. And the way that they eat livestock together and separately and how they influence the way that the other carnivores attack livestock is one of the primary things that I'm interested in. So in the past, a lot of our guests would look at a lot of microscopic details of different problems that we didn't understand that well. But it sounds like here you're actually going outwards and looking at a much larger issue where you're looking at not only just one carnivore, but a whole, how they all interact with each other. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, I'm really interested in the big picture output. So what are we looking at when you take all of the different carnivore species, all of the different wild prey species like zebras and antelope, and then all of the humans and all of their livestock species that they have, so that how all of that together works as a system. But... I do actually collect my data at a really fine scale. So we are looking at collecting information um, kind of at a point-by-point basis, looking specifically with individual motion-activated cameras, but then putting it all together to look at the big picture, kind of knitting it together almost like a quilt. We take little bits and pieces from different places, put them together, and see what the whole thing looks like from afar. All right, I have so many questions. Uh You guys look at, to clarify, you guys look at multiple carnivores and see their interactions with the livestock, but you're looking at it in one location. And I'm wondering, what location are you guys focused on? Like, how did you figure out that location? Is it somewhere where all of these herds populate? And do you tag these herds or something? Yeah, so our location is determined based on the communities that we're working with that experience the most conflict with carnivores. So my research is currently located in Kenya in an area called Laikipia, which is in the central um, part of Kenya. And we have four different communities that we work in. And so we went directly to the community elders and asked them which households, which livestock corrals, which families, I guess you could say, um, have experienced the most conflict with carnivores, which ones have lost the most livestock. And those are the places where we decided to situate our study. With the goal being that the information we discover, the, the results that we come up with, are actually going to be applicable to the places where they are most needed. So why did you pick this particular area to study? Is it that there's a lot of carnivores going into this area specifically to eat the livestock that we're raising here? Or were they already coming there before we introduced livestock into that environment? So they were there long before... 
what we would consider to be kind of modern times. But the livestock have also been there pretty much forever. So the the conflict that we're seeing is between traditional communities and I guess what you would maybe call traditional carnivores, carnivores that have been there forever. The rate at which we're seeing conflict between them has increased dramatically. And that's how we picked our locations, was areas where you see these spikes of conflict, these spikes of um, livestock loss by large carnivores. And the reason that we have it in some areas and not others um, has to do with a whole bunch of different factors, things like drought, um, areas that get less rain. So you have um, more livestock and wild prey trying to eat the same grasses, which brings in different, um, brings the carnivores in, they're following wild prey, and then they happen to see a cow, which is a lot easier to attack, and they tend to go for that. But we're also interested in this area because there's been a pretty dramatic increase in human populations. So the human populations are growing, so the number of livestock that they're keeping are growing, and they're spreading out. So they're spreading out, um, the community centers are expanding, and we're getting more and more overlap between human areas and the areas where wild carnivores live. And all of that together is creating these kind of what we call hot spots of conflict. And then out of all of these different meat-eating animals, which one did you find the most interesting and which one is having the largest impact on these human carnivore conflicts? So we see the most conflict over, well, I guess I'd say we have two different ways to look at that. So the first would be the species of carnivore that actually eats the most livestock. And the second would be the species of carnivore that attracts the most attention for eating livestock. The first would be a hyena. Hyenas eat, um, in some areas, up to about 80% of the livestock that are taken. The second would probably be lions because they have such cultural significance and people all around the world really love lions. You get a lot of external um, international research teams and conservation NGOs coming in and placing emphasis on lions, even though they don't actually eat the most livestock. So from just a pure um, numbers perspective, I would say hyenas we see the most interest in. From uh, an overall conflict perspective, I would say probably lions. How do you guys clarify to people that lions are not the ones attacking most of these livestock? That is a very difficult question to answer, actually, because it depends on which people you're trying to talk to. So if we are trying to talk about the conflict to the people that are actually experiencing it, so the community members, they already know. They are very aware of which carnivores are eating their livestock. And they are really looking from us, they're looking for assistance with limiting the number of livestock that they lose from hyenas mostly. If you're trying to talk to the people who tend to fund research and who are interested in supporting conservation, it becomes a much more difficult question because we have to try to convince them that actually in order to save lions, we really have to reduce the overall rates of conflict. We have to reduce the amount of conflict that we're seeing in those communities as a whole, which means that we actually have to focus our research efforts on something other than the species that they really want to focus on. And in order to do that, we have to be pretty strategic about the papers we write, the, um, the type of outreach that we do to drum up interest in, in looking big picture as opposed to just fine scale. Whenever you guys are looking at these interactions and the conflict, do you guys actually interfere with it? Do you try to create solutions or try to 
minimize that conflict is are or are you guys just observing it and reporting it? A little bit of both, actually. So to start off with, we have to establish a baseline. Before you can see what is working and what is effective, we need to know what's happening without any sort of intervention. So we've started doing our research where we're just trying to put up, collect some data about what's going on as is. And then as the project develops and as we build in more complexity to it, we will actually start intervening. We'll start putting out things that we think might be effective at deterring carnivores. So things like chain link fences, um, motion activated lights, anything that might scare a carnivore away. And then we will look at how the rates of conflict that we see, the numbers of livestock that are attacked or lost change depending on which interventions and which deterrents we've used. Now, would you say that the goal of this research project is to help create more of a deterrence program or a coexistence program with humans and carnivores? I'd say they're one and the same, really. In order, well, okay, so as some background, the number one cause of conflict between humans and large carnivores pretty much everywhere in the world is livestock loss. So if you can reduce the number of livestock that are killed, then you can reduce conflict. So what we really need to do, what we're really trying to do here is effectively deter carnivores so that there is less conflict resulting from the loss of livestock. Do you believe that we could coexist with these carnivores? Do the carnivores ever attack humans? Yes, I do really think that there there are some solutions out there that we can find a way to make sharing life um sharing landscapes with these large carnivores sustainable long term and the reality is that that people actually have for the most part been coexisting with large carnivores all around the world for most of human history the lack of coexistence is a pretty recent thing um and to answer your second question uh almost rarely do we actually see humans get attacked by large carnivores. There are some instances of it, instances of it, of course, if you give a hungry carnivore an easy access to an easy meal, it's probably going to take it. But for the most part, it's very very rare to see carnivores that actively seek out humans as prey. It, it tends to be other sources of prey that are are causing the problem there. So here's an interesting segue to take it. <laughs> what role do you think climate change has in regards to these Human conflict with carnivores, is it becoming more difficult for these carnivores to find other prey that it's making it easier to just go after the livestock? Or what do you think? So there actually is some really interesting research out there about that specific thing. Um, and there's actually some really interesting research about that at my study site. So I can I can speak to this pretty well. One aspect of climate change that we don't really talk about that much, but is a pretty significant effect of it is increased drought. So particularly in areas that already experience drought, such as Central and Eastern Africa, having increased drought, longer drought, less water, we tend to see livestock getting pushed into areas um, where we have more wild prey, and we see wild prey getting pushed into areas where we have more livestock. They're all going for the same water sources. So if the only water source is, say, a trough on a farmer's land or on a wildlife conservancy, then all of the different prey are going to congregate around that one water source. And then you're going to get the carnivores that follow all of that prey to that one water source. 
And then once they get there, they make a decision about what type of prey is going to be easiest for them to catch and give them the most output. And that often is domestic prey because they're not as good at evading predators. So we do actually see a pretty substantial increase in conflict between humans and large carnivores in areas and times when we're starting to see things like drought that are a direct result of climate change. Another interesting question would be, how are the offspring of these carnivores adapting to these easier livestock targets? Because as these conflicts grow more and more, a lot of these offspring are going to be trained to understand that livestock is going to be the easier prey to go after. And what effects do you think that will have? I'm not sure we can really say yet, but it is definitely something that people are concerned about long term. Because as you mentioned, a big part of carnivore behavior is taught. So these small baby lions, they learn how to hunt from their parents. So if their parents have learned that the easiest access to prey comes from stalking something like a goat or a cow, then that's what the next generation of lions are going to think is the best access to food. So just off the top of my head, I would guess that it's one of those things that would would snowball. So the more livestock loss we see in this generation, the more there's going to be in the next generation and the next, and that it would kind of get bigger and bigger and bigger as we go on. But I don't know. I guess if we could find some way to, to stop that cycle pretty soon, then we might be able to turn it around a bit. But it's definitely something we're trying to keep an eye on. So it seems pretty imperative that this is a issue that we should get under control. Yeah, absolutely. And not only from the human perspective, but also from the wildlife perspective. And that most of these carnivores are either endangered or threatened with declining populations, meaning they are right on the verge of becoming endangered. And one of the most common reactions to losing livestock is that the livestock owners go out and kill carnivores in retaliation. So they either try to find the one that was specifically responsible for killing their cow Or they'll just go out and they'll try to kill whichever one is closest, whichever one they find first. Or they'll put out poisoned carcasses, which can take out an entire pride of lions. So we see pretty significant impacts on the carnivore populations from this conflict as well. And we are very much at a tipping point with a lot of those populations that if we can't slow that decline pretty soon, then we might be kind of over the point at which we might be able to reverse that pattern. Is it illegal for these farmers to be putting out poison carcasses or things like that? It depends where you are. Um, In most places, yes, it is. But there isn't much in the way of government oversight that could really prevent it or put restrictions on what what types of poisons are accessible and, and those types of things. So as a general rule, no, it's not allowed, but it's still very, very common. Thanks for sharing all of your research with us, Claire. I thought this was really motivating and inspiring. But I was wondering, what inspired you to get into this research? So it's actually kind of a funny story in that I am one of those weird people who has literally known their entire life what they wanted to do. As a matter of fact, my parents were just moving a couple of years ago and we were going through all the old boxes that my mom had saved of my school projects. And we quite literally found one from when I was six years old. It was a research project I did on lions. And we had to ask these questions about our our study species or whatever. And one of my questions was, when did the lions start disappearing? 
And the other one was, how can people start saving lions? So literally from since before I can remember, this is what I wanted to do. And I'm trying to be, I've tried to work my way towards the point I'm at now for quite some time. I've done research on a whole bunch of different species, working my way up the food train from squirrels now up to lynx and wolves and lions. And there's something about East Africa that kind of got under my skin when I was a little kid, probably watching David Attenborough videos or something. And um, it's just been there ever since. You mentioned that you had done multiple things to help you get to where you're at right now. What were some of those things other than the research with the squirrels and the lynxes? So one thing that I have found incredibly useful and beneficial in my career getting to this point was developing a, a bit of a personal network. So I've tried to be a bit strategic about who I make opportunities to meet and develop personal relationships with. Not just, I guess, beyond just the the benefit professionally, but I've found that the best advice about where to go, what to focus on, what skills to develop comes from somewhat personal conversations. So I've tried to really develop a, a personal network um, and meet as many cool wildlife people as I can as I've gone along. So when you're not in the jungle, what do you like to do? <laughs> what do I like to do? I I guess I'm a pretty standard student in that I watch a lot of videos, although my videos tend to be nature-oriented, <laughs> a lot of David Attenborough still in my life. I also have tried to build in that network into my personal life here at MSU. So I've actually started a group on campus called the Women in Nature Network that is um, we're an individual, a local chapter of an international organization. And our goal is to provide opportunities for networking and skill building for women who are in natural resource-based disciplines. And then we try to provide opportunities for them to connect with the women in the other chapters, which are located in places like Mexico and Guyana and India and Switzerland and really all over the world. So that has become actually a huge part of my life. I spend a lot of time trying to organize events, connect with people, make that group grow and kind of be self-sustaining. I think it really is a great group. I went to one of their dinners last semester and it was a wonderful group of ladies, honestly. We were glad that you were there. (laughs) Claire, I was wondering, do you have any advice for women who might be interested in getting into science? I do, and it goes back to this thing that I have talked about a lot, and that's networking. My number one piece of advice is just seek out conversations, that I have yet to meet a single person in this field who wasn't really, really excited to talk to somebody who was really, really excited about the things that they love. And it can be pretty awkward to try to reach out to people that you don't know, send them an email and ask if they'd be willing to give up a little bit of their precious time to talk to you. But again, I have yet to have anybody say no to me. And that has been the most useful and the most inspirational thing to me is just making time for personal conversations. And every person you talk to, ask if they have two or three more people that they can put you in contact with and you just build your network and develop conversations as you go. Earlier, you mentioned that you knew what you wanted to do from early on as a child up until now. What are your plans for when you finish your doctorate? Are there plans of possibly just moving to East Africa permanently? And do you want to work with lions for the rest of your life? 
You know, that's something that I feel like I'm still figuring out. So I'm actually from the West Coast. I grew up in Washington, and I would have this little hope that someday I might be able to get back out towards the West. Not that Michigan isn't wonderful, but I do miss my mountains. But I don't know exactly what direction I'm going to go after I come out of my Ph.D., I feel like my perspective on what would be the most valuable contribution to wildlife conservation has changed pretty dramatically already in the couple of years that I've been here. And I have a feeling it will continue to change as I go through. Right now, my I'm feeling pretty drawn towards science communication as opposed to the research itself. I do feel like there's a lot of knowledge out there already about what we need to do to be able to conserve large carnivores and minimize the amount of conflict that they're experiencing with humans. What seems to be lacking is an effective communication of that knowledge in a way that helps people to engage with it and helps that knowledge actually be effectively used to minimize conflict. I feel like it kind of gets trapped in this academic bubble. So I think it would be a pretty amazing place to be as a professional, to be almost a bridge between academia and conservation and other stakeholders and and the public as a whole, which tends to get pretty excited about things like wildlife conservation, but doesn't really know what to do with that excitement. So for now, I'm trying to work myself towards a science communication type position where I could use my knowledge as a researcher, as a scientist to develop excitement about the conservation action and, and try to make sure that that what we're learning on the ground is being applied in a way that can then go back and have an impact on what, what's happening on the ground as well. That's really important work that you're planning on doing for not only humans, but also the rest of the animal world as well. Thank you for joining us today, Claire. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Claire. Thank you. Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week. And remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on Scifiles.